like a moment from a horror movie. You have been hanging out in the wrong clubs, Mr. Wayne. I've seen this movie. Smoke and mirrors, guys. Welcome to the movie factory. Join the club. We've got jackets. And you stole it from a movie. We want you in our club, kid. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Burke Reviews Movie Club. I'm John Burke, and with me, as always, Corey Starr. Hello, hello. And we are here uh, to do two movies this week. We are covering uh, Movie Brats. These are uh, the big name directors from that era. Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Brian De Palma, John Milius, Martin Scorsese, and Steve Spielberg. Um, now, we're really focused on two of these directors because we've seen most of George Lucas's movies and Spielberg's movies. And I have seen all of Martin Scorsese's movies. Um, but we haven't seen a lot of Ford Coppola and Brian De Palma. I had an itch in my throat. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about two Ford Coppola movies, something Corey loves to do. She loves when we watch back-to-back movies from the same director. Um, we're talking Rumblefish from 1983, and then his older movie, The Conversation from 1974. These were gaps on both of our viewing history. And since the last time we recorded, we've watched both of these movies. I will say it's been a hot minute since I last watched uh, – Rumblefish has been at least two weeks and I've seen many movies since then. So my memory is a little hazy on that one, but uh, we'll have a better conversation, I think, with the conversation. Oops. Um, so, Corey, before we jump into the two movies, how are you doing? I'm good. Tired as always. Always the tired one. Yep. Well, you picked Rumblefish. Uh, what was it about this movie that drew you in? Um, so I love um, The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. And so I think we watched The Outsiders for this. Maybe not. We I, I have watched it. I don't point. remember if we did. It, it would have been a long time ago. But yeah. Um, and I haven't read Rumblefish, but I knew it was based off of another one of her books. Um, so I was just interested in seeing it for that reason. And we have, um, it's obviously directed by Ford Coppola, and he also is credited with the screenplay. Um, it stars Matt Dillon, Mickey Rourke, um, very different looking Mickey Rourke, by the way. I can't uh, handle that. He looks, like, actually, like, good like, in this, and it's like. That sounds so mean. But... I know, but he looks like he's wearing a mask in a lot of stuff, and he has had some injuries, and, like, even more recently, he had, like, a boxing injury or something, but uh, this movie. <laughs> Also has Diane Lane, Dennis Hopper, um, and then a bunch of other people pop up, including Nicolas Cage, uh, who I thought was billed as um, Nicholas Coppola still, but he doesn't appear to be. Uh, we get Chris Penn, so Sean Penn's younger brother, who's in a lot of stuff. A very young Lawrence Fishburne as Larry Fishburne still um, at this time before he goes in. Uh, Tom Waits was the bartender. I don't know if he caught that. Yes. Um, and then... Uh, Sophia Coppola plays the very young uh, Patty's sister, um, who Patty is uh, Diane Lane, so her little sister that loves uh, Rusty James, which gotta love the name Rusty James, because um, everyone says Rusty James too. It's not like they call him Rusty, Rusty ever, or James. It's Rusty James, which made me think that maybe it's isn't like his name, but that is his full nickname. You know how, like, when you think of famous people and, like, most of the time, it, well, at least me, sometimes I'll be like Britney about Britney Spears or something, but 
like so many famous people, I just don't connect that they're real people, I guess, and that they mm. just have like a first name. I can't think of any um like examples right now. Like if you just said like Justin and we were talking about Justin Timberlake, it would take me a little bit also we call him JT. But you know what I mean? Like it kind of is that kind familiarity. of like famous, like he's I don't know, notorious. Well, and they are, so the premise of the film is absent-minded street thug Rusty James struggles to live up to the legendary, his legendary older brother's reputation and longs for the days of gang warfare, uh, gang warfare being like New York street gangs. Um, and there's a, a bicycle thing. His brother's name is the Motorcycle Boy, which is so ridiculous. Um, it's It's very silly. Uh, for Coppola does some really innovative, weird filming stuff in this movie. Uh, one is black and white. Um, there's some really interesting, like dream sequence stuff. Lots of smoke. There's, there's like uh, smoke or mist in like every sequence. Um, yeah, I mean, and there's this whole. I'm trying to remember. There's a surreal scene in it. Um, he uses uh, red and blue a few times. Um, for different scenes that is pretty cool and pretty, especially with the fish, the, uh, I, f I don't remember the correct term now, um, but the fighting fish, uh, they, they are highlighted in red and blue and it's pretty cool. Yeah. So did you like the movie? Spoilers. Um, yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Let's go ahead and, uh, spoiler warning for Rumblefish. Uh, I stole your gig. <laughs> ah, um, what am I here for then? Bye, guys. See you next episode. No, I'm kidding. You um, stole my thing. You introduced the spoilers. <laughs> no, I was like, well, I didn't know, like, since we're doing a double episode, if we're going to, like, you know, because um, I was going to say about that one particular scene, I hate that. And it reminds me of those photos that were big, like, during MySpace when, like, people, everyone's like, oh, I'm a photographer. It, but they couldn't, like, decide if they wanted to work in black and white or in color. So they, like, oh, it's black and white, but I'm going to make this one thing yellow. Like, kind of like they don't, I don't know. It's called selective color. It's a, it's a pretty common practice. Um, I think it's so ugly. I, oh, man, I, I love decide. when. No, what are you talking about? Like, you can't decide. It's you're, you're deciding to. Spielberg did Schindler's List. You know, I never finished watching that. Wasn't oh, my goodness. Red in it? Yeah, yes, uh, an important element of the film is the motif yeah, of red we've talked about this like i got through disc one and i was either supposed to put in disc two or flip it over or something and i was just like too heartbroken i couldn't do it well um, yes i mean it's a devastating movie but it um... is i can't like some things i can just go through and like power through it i can just but i mean, that one i just couldn't it technically not to and spoil to schindler's list but it does end on an upbeat like it, it oh, does it like i mean the Nazis eventually lose, right? Like, so yeah. there's like Schindler does some amazing things in the movie. If you keep watching, there is still more heartbreak to come because you will see atrocities by the Nazis in Schindler's list. But I feel like it's just so devastating. I can't do it. I do follow the Auschwitz, Auschwitz museum. I, I, I'd give you more crap but i still haven't watched 12 years of slave for the exact same it's reason. hard like and um, we we know like you said about that like we know what happens like it's terrible and i hope it never happens again obviously uh, 
but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, sometimes it's just so freaking devastating. I can't handle it. Um, but so yes, I am now, but it's honestly been like probably 10 years since I tried to watch that. Um, but now that you're saying that I remember the red, but I, I like selective color, especially if it is purposeful because i do know what you're saying like with myspace there is definitely a good chance some of those people were just like using filters and whatnot but still see like photographer do photographers do that sometimes i see people get tattoos like that and i'm like see again i i am a big fan of that um it it does something especially if the color has symbolic meaning like the color red and schindler's list um and then here the red and blue uh i think he uses it with the cop lights at one point as well um, it's been a minute, but I think there is some interpretation. This is a, especially you got to remember Ford Coppola is most known for the Godfather, which mm-hmm. probably has some symbolic stuff in it, but is very straightforward in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there's just, it's a, a narrative you follow. There's some really great stuff. There's obviously some symbolism with the, uh, the baptism, uh, sequence at the end of the film, but even that's still pretty literal, but there's more to be read into it. Um, but I feel like the Godfather is a very on the surface, straightforward narrative film and not in a critical, like not in a negative way. I just think it's like compared to what I'm starting to realize, the more I've seen of Ford Coppola's other stuff is he does like to go a little out there sometimes like this movie. There's a lot of sequences that have almost a David Lynch vibe to it, which is not, what I would have anticipated for, for Coppola. And then you think of like Bram Stoker's Dracula, a movie you love and I can't stand. I love it so much listeners. There are so many really interesting filmmaking techniques that he uses. Like there's the, uh, he uses the shadow puppets uh, to illustrate like, um, I love that. Right. And he does stuff like that. He's very innovative with how he shows the story. He doesn't just always do it the way you would anticipate. And I didn't do like any more research. So this is like, a lot of this, I think, it looks amazing, like the black and white and like all the smoke and fog you were talking about and like the shadows. But I didn't realize I did listen to a video. Um, I guess apparently he like painted over, painted some of the scenes where the shadows are. And that's mm. one of the reasons he made it black and white. But like I said, I only that's coming from one source. I haven't like looked into that anymore. But it makes sense with all the shot. It would make sense with all the shadows. I thought I do enjoy like those things that he pulls in, you know, because I feel like it's techniques that maybe a lot of people wouldn't use. Or I mean, even though we see him use it, we're like, oh, my gosh, Ford, you know, Coppola is doing this, you know, like, I don't know. And for this kind of small movie that like I hadn't heard much about, um, you know, and I kind of I came across this before you picked it because i watched um the incredible weight of massive talent the new nicholas cage film and oh. i was looking at his filmography and this was on there and i was like oh um i i and then i bought it pretty cheap on voodoo uh not too long ago and then you happened to pick it i was like oh great um i had bought this and uh you know i like matt dillon i don't love matt dillon but 80s matt yeah. dillon's pretty good um and i think he's goodness there's always an element to his performances though that feel like a performance in these younger days like the outsiders is the same way but it works with the way ford coppola is using him in this um because everything about this feels a little off kilter a little surreal um and 
there are like some of the the he uses split diopter a lot there's which is um a a thing where you literally have half a lens as like a a near like focus lens and the other half is a uh distance lens and you they're um allowing you to have a forced perspective where you can see both uh the foreground and background in in focus like there's a sequence where they're sitting at a bar and motorcycle boy is on one side of the booth and the dad is drunk uh with um rusty on the other side and they're both in focus and normally you wouldn't be able to pull that off but with the split diopter you can do that it's it's not uncommon at all uh, anymore but like he uses a lot of like little techniques like that with this movie um even the tom waits character as the bartender i i feel like he has like a narrate like a narrator perspective at times which is weird um yeah it's just a it's an interesting movie i i don't i wish we could have recorded the week i actually watched this so that i would it'd be fresher in my mind um because i had watched a couple of videos about it too and all of that's just gone at this point um but i i did enjoy it which is i think the most important thing did you uh overall like it i mean i liked um i guess like the filmography i guess like seeing some of what he did in it but i wasn't really um interested in the story i was like i don't feel like they ever we hear all these things about motorcycle boy but i don't feel like it's ever really i don't know i don't feel like they ever illustrate enough to us to live up to what we're told about him i guess I think that's kind of part of the story, though, is that he he didn't do. I don't think he did a lot of the things that he his legend precedes him. You know, like okay, Rusty fair. has this uh, idea, idealistic version of who who his brother was and and how people revere him, and he wants that same level of uh, respect, and he's not getting it. And the way Motorcycle Boy acts is like, yeah, no, it's all it's all a myth. Everything like we, I went all the way to California to see mom, and then that wasn't what i wanted like uh, everything is disappointing everything is bigger in our heads than it really is um we should just enjoy the little things i mean like everybody calls him crazy Mm. and like like every so many people call him you know crazy and like that cop hates him and i mean he gets ends up getting shot and killed over breaking into a pet store and releasing some fish yeah you know, which is like so ridiculous doesn't isn't the right word because it's, you know, life. But you know what I mean? It just it never like I don't know. There's a moment where they're standing in front of a giant clock that I feel like Robert Zemeckis has to be like the inspiration mm. for Back to the Future Three. Um it's just it's the shot it just looks like the sequence from Back to the Future Three, like the way they're standing in front of it. Um, I don't know. I mean, Zemeckis is not part of the uh, the movie Bratz, but he is a disciple of Spielberg. Spielberg helps him uh, get directing opportunities, so it wouldn't surprise me if he was very, very versed in all of the movie Bratz movies. So, um, and this only comes out a few years before Back to the Future Three comes out. But oh, dang! Um, yeah, I just don't feel like there's much story here. I guess. I mean, it's yeah, I think uh, Ford Coppola is doing more of like a moon and um, it's a throwback just like the Outsiders. They, they have that greaser vibe like, you know, uh, it's not exactly the same, but it's not it's not in the 80s when we're watching this. It's like in yeah. the 50s New York and it's 
it's uh it's got an interesting kind of vibe to it you know the whole gang life um their type of gangs but uh that's i guess sufficient for rumblefish uh i i liked it Corey is lukewarm on it but yeah. it's definitely more of an artsy movie um i think than it is uh for a traditional narrative there is a story though it's not like it's uh completely like narrative list or anything like that but it's definitely yeah. um you know some loose stuff and it's 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 like a fever dream in a lot of ways, uh, which is Rumblefish oh. literally has, or I'm not his. I keep wanting to call him Rumblefish. His it's name is not page. Rumblefish. Um, I I did want to. Sorry, I would no. like to backtrack a little bit. Um, so there are some interesting um scenes in this movie, like um where he's Rusty James is having like that out of body experience, which is yes so. Sh- strange and then i think his brother like swoops in and saves the day like i can see that his brother kind of maybe doesn't have a lot of fear in him you know like not a lot of caution yeah because those guys have like knives and stuff and could really hurt him but he doesn't really seem to even think about that or care um you know like so that's just a very interesting scene because i've not it's like clumsy kind of, I guess. Mm. Cause they have them like turning and stuff in the air. I think at some point and like looking down on himself, it was just a very strange, you know, scene. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's a, it's a weird sequence. Um, but again, by complete design, like Fort yeah. Coppola is playing with all sorts of weird tropes and stuff in this. Um, all right. So, anything else for Rumblefish before we move on to the conversation? No. It's weird saying that on a podcast because it's like we were having a conversation. But let's switch to the film, the conversation from 1974. I picked this one. This has long been on my radar. Um, it's in a bunch of film books and magazines, and I've you know read about it. I've actually seen some of the key sequences in this movie. Um, oh wow! Prior to. Uh, watching it which i I had forgotten actually until the scene happened i was like oh that's right i've seen this um so the conversation 1974 has said a paranoid secretive surveillance expert has a crisis of consciousness when he uh or conscious sorry when he suspects that uh, the couple he is spying on will be murdered uh written and directed by ford coppola a small film by comparison to the godfather this is just two years after the godfather i believe um we have gene hackman in the lead role as harry call John Cazal, uh, Alan Garfield, Frederick Forrest, Cindy Williams, Michael Higgins, Terry Garr uh, plays Amy. Um, we have this is Harrison Ford's second big movie because he was just in American Graffiti and then this. Um, and he has a couple of other credits, but I think they're all smaller things. Um, uncredited. But important uh, is Robert Duvall shows up, which is he's a regular for Coppola's early uh, Godfather stuff. Um, and Elizabeth McRae oh, yeah, as Meredith. So yeah, he's the director. Um, I think to follow suit uh, before we get into spoilers, um, I really uh, at one point I was kind of frustrated with this movie and I was like, I don't know if I like this. And by the end, I really, really liked it. Um, and I also think it's cool that we watched uh, Blowout because there's a lot to do with sound in both Blowout and the conversation. They're not the same, but they both involve uh, audio being captured on tape and then someone trying to do something with it. 
And I thought that was kind of an interesting parallel oh, yeah. for this one. Um, even yeah. though they're not identical by any means, but it is Ford Coppola and um, uh, Brian De Palma both have a movie that is focused around a sound guy, essentially, which is really cool because that's not something you see a lot of movies focusing on. And I really, really like uh, those two elements. Um, and if you haven't seen, uh, I'm going to forget the name of it, but um, man, what is that dude's name? Uh, you, did you see In Fabric, Corey? In it's, Fabric? Uh, yeah, Peter Strickland movie. No. Okay, so he did a movie called Barbarian Sound Studio, which... Oh, um, was that A24 movie I think I wanted to see? In Fabric was, yes. Um, yes. It's very good. Uh, it's weird. Um, <gasps> Strickland it's is weird. Um, it is, uh, but in a... I don't want to say anything. Um, okay, Barbarian Sound Studio and Blowout and Conversation would be a cool like triple header. They are very different. Um, Barbarian is more horror than these others are more thriller. But... Nevertheless, um, uh, the conversation, I really liked it uh, by the end of the film. Uh, Gene Hackman's performance is phenomenal. There is a sequence where I was getting really annoyed until I found out why it existed. Um, And I'll talk about that in spoilers. But I want to know before we get to spoilers, what did you think, Corey? I also enjoyed it. I did feel like it was a little long sometimes. But Which it, it is under two hours, but uh, it does it. It has a few. Slow. It's paced deliberately uh, to to stretch some things out. But yeah, I, uh, by modern standards, for sure, it is uh, much more patient with getting to to points. Yes, but I did enjoy it. Um, it is. Uh, we watched on Vudu. Um, it is available to own. I don't think it's streaming on anything at the moment. Um, I also, I don't know, I don't think this one has a criterion and it really feels like it should have a criterion. Um, Fish does, or it did. That's wild. Um, cause that one, I wouldn't have thought it had, would have that, uh, cause it's, it's so like not known to me, but, um, this one is super well known. And so I'm really shocked that it isn't, uh, on criterion if, it, unless I'm wrong and it is, and then I'm just talking out my butt, but, um, Anywho, let's let's get into spoilers. Corey? Guys, from here on out, we are going to talk about the conversation. You have been warned. We're going to have a conversation about, about. the conversation. Um, so the the opening sequence, I think, is really cool where uh, the couple is walking around in circles. And like we see all these microphones that look like sniper rifles at first because they have like scopes on them and they are... Uh, just from long distance recording the audio from this and they they're doing it in multiple sections like three three different microphones and you're not really sure why at first um and then it reveals that he's going to take these three different recordings and like meld them into one so even if like when we're listening to it the first time some of the audio is off like it's distorted and, and it's really it was like i thought for a minute it was the movie and then i was like no 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 this is intentional the audio is not coming in perfect but he's going to fix it that's one of the things i thought was really really interesting about this movie was seeing his his ability to mix audio like it's such a cool tribute now he's a surveillance expert um that plays into he's alone he he's very paranoid he keeps everybody at a distance um i found all of his personality and character stuff to be very very interesting um he's kind of a creep yeah yeah, I think you, that's fair to say. Um, 
I mean, but he's not surveilling. I don't know. He is. It I, it takes a personality um, to be this type of job, which is, again, is not a job I've ever seen depicted, but obviously it's a real thing. Like, I mean, you've seen guys in movies who like they set up the bug or whatever, but like not they're not usually the main character through the process, too. Yes. Which the process of this movie, I thought was super compelling um, as well. Like just what what his job is, what it entails. Um, he is an interesting character, but like some of the things that we see about him, like I still don't quite understand the situation with him and the woman he is seeing. Like he pays for her apartment and he just comes over when he wants to to sleep with her. Like, yes, but she I would can't s- like ask any questions. Like, is she? I was like, is she a shut in? I don't really know what's going on here. My my guess would be she was probably like living on the street or working the street. And he mm. like, quote unquote, rescues her. Mm. And so she's, you know, she has a sugar daddy and she doesn't ask questions. And um, that's the way he likes it. He he likes to keep his distance. Um, I mean, I don't know. You know, like, I think his character is, like, the extreme. Uh, He's been taken to this, like, this level of um, artificiality for the purposes of this story. But I think the guy, you know, um, because there's the ethical question at the end that I really think is super important. Um, Because we we learn that he surveilled a guy and the guy gets murdered. uh, Or the whole family was murdered because of the surveillance. I... Yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised he kept doing this because it obviously greatly affected him. And I mean, not saying that it shouldn't, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, to have that heavy on you and to know that that is because of something that you've done and to keep on doing it. But I guess like if this is what you're good at, it can be hard to walk away. And he's we're we are told he's not only good, but he is the best. And we see that when he goes to the uh, surveillance convention um, and people don't know who he is right away, but when they realize his name, they're like, Oh my God, you're the guy. Like you can are you the man picture in front of my booth. Yeah. And like, can you at least hold this and like pretend? Um, so the sequence that bugged me was uh, he, there's one guy who really like wants him to be his partner. And they, they go back to his uh, workshop and they have like, they've brought girls with them. Um, apparently surveillance guys get groupies is what we're supposed to take, which that doesn't bother me as much as it's a little preposterous. But the second the guy puts the pen in his pocket, I'm like, that's I'm a like, why are you doing that? Like, this is your job and something. Yeah. He's like, I want you to have this. I want you to have a pen. And I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. I'm like, that's a hundred percent of microphone, but it goes on for a long time. And the guy is just like so pushy. And he's like, there's, Part of the reason I didn't like it is the tension. It, it's it's really well oh, done where there's that like, yeah, you can tell there's hostility, even though he's trying to put on a facade of friendship. Like it's very, you know, he's pushy and you can tell like if he doesn't get what he wants, he's not going to be OK with it, you know. Um, And, you know, it plays out badly. He He gets mad. He gets embarrassed. He kicks everybody out. There's a recording of him talking about the girl that you were just talking about uh like do you think she'll come back do you think like you know she'll ever understand that i love her even if i don't tell her um and it's it's very sad and then the girl he ends up sleeping with the girl a different girl um who then 
steals the tape. Like, Which I was waiting he for wasn't, that too. He wasn't going to give the tape to the director, which Harrison Ford is the director's assistant, uh, because he's afraid that the director's going to find out that his wife or girlfriend is cheating on him and that he'll kill them. And we hear in the, the conversation on the tape um, that the guy's like, he'd kill us if he had the chance. So he has a very real paranoia that this the director is maybe not trustworthy. He doesn't want the repeat of what happened to him. So the girl steals the the, the tape. He goes, uh, collects his money, a lot of money, so much money. Um, $15,000. Which Harrison Ford says, not bad for a day's work. And I'm like, this guy's been working this on that tape. One day. For like, yeah, it's, that's a lot. It's, I don't know. I mean, 15000 in that time is a lot like that's like some people's annual salary right like so it's a lot um don't get me wrong but still like it was like if somebody wanted to give me fifteen thousand, you know yeah for what we see him do i mean it's still like it is way more than a day's work but it still is yeah substantially less work than a lot of other people would do for that much money so um but of course, we don't know how much his equipment costs, which has got to be a lot because he's mm-hmm. making stuff that doesn't exist. And, you know, um, tape and stuff like that is not cheap either at that time to like record that much and, and mixing all that equipment. But I really found uh, that all very cool. And the big thing at the end is there is a major twist. We were bamboozled. We, we've all been bamboozled, right? Like um, he... Uh, goes to the hotel room adjacent he gets the room adjacent to where he knows they are going to be meeting um he thinks he sees the woman is killed he stays there overnight he's hesitating he goes to the room everything there's no sign that there was anything there and then we get the weird kind of surreal for coppola touch where he flushes the toilet and the blood starts like like i i'm not an expert but even if there is a bloody rag that started to flush and then didn't flush the way it like it basically starts bleeding, right? Like to me, the toilet is bleeding more so than it is like there's some blood in, on a rag. Because even if there was like a lot of blood on the rag, it wouldn't come up the way it does. You know what I'm saying? Like it, there's so much. It's way more than like what a rag would. Again, I understand it's a movie, but it does feel uh, like more surreal. Uh, and maybe he imagined it. To be fair, um. It's unclear, I think, because it does cut away after that. And uh, we do know for a fact, though, that, yes, someone was killed, but it wasn't the girl. It was the director. Robert Duvall's character is murdered by the two of them. What we actually heard in the conversation was them planning his murder, not them trying to figure out how to get away from his attempting killing them, um, which was a twist I didn't see coming. It sounded to me like they were setting up a date for a... I don't know what you would call that. Like a, a rendezvous, like escape kind of thing? or No, like for their affair, like mm. to, like a oh, hookup? I'll see you at the hotel. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, is Trist the right word? I don't really know, guys. <laughs> but yeah, that's what it sounded like to me that they were setting up. And so they're on the board of directors, both of those people, right? Is what it seems sounded like to me. And they were trying to get this guy off of like out of his seat of power. Something like that. Yeah. I wasn't because Oh part, and Harrison's part, Oh go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I was gonna say part I, I didn't part of that stuff was like over my head. I'm like, I don't understand all these who all these people are, but 
cool. And it seemed like, um, so like the whole time, it seems like we're being led to believe that Harrison Ford's character is trying to help out the the man he works for, who is the director. But really, he was trying to set it up. So I guess so that he does think that they're having an affair. Yeah, yeah. He definitely wanted the director to be mad to storm over there so that they could take him out, I guess. Yeah, um, but he was in on it. He was in on it, too. Yeah, which leads to one of the coolest camera things in the in the movie. The end of the film, uh, it's revealed that they have tapped his house and that they basically say, like, you better stop or we, we will kill you. Like, we know you know. And if it stops here, we're willing to let it go. But we we hear everything you say, and you can hear him playing like the saxophone. Um, and oh so yeah, he tears up his house looking for the bug, and he cannot find it, which is insane. Because you got to ask, who has bugged this guy, the master of this? Who did they hire to do this? Because he can't even seem to find it. And it is possible that there is no bug, and he's paranoid, and they just played on his paranoia, um, or something like that. Like it's possible. But the camera at the end is acting like a security camera. It's like panning left and right, like it's oscillating, which okay. is a really cool touch to the camera work because it it's almost like we are the surveillance. We are the ones watching him now. Yeah, it's so interesting, though, because like just part of who he is, Gene Hackman's character, is like when we first go into his apartment we see like that it's very sterile there's nothing like personal in there there are no photographs there like the only thing that's personal that we ever see is what does he play i forget was it a saxophone saxophone, yeah yeah that's like the only thing that is like his that's there if that makes sense it's very sterile kind of like he's staying in a hotel i guess Mm. and then like this happens and it's invaded his place and he even tells us that he doesn't keep personal things in his home and you know like he doesn't even like that i guess the landlady or whoever runs the building came into his apartment and left some wine or something for his birthday or even knew that it was his birthday and that was a whole big thing he was gonna not even receive his mail there anymore and just I, i think even despite what it is that someone is listening to your every move and you now have no privacy perhaps um if they really did set that up but it's like exponential to him because i think his space is just so sacred to him i guess he doesn't want anyone in there i don't know it just made it even worse i think yeah like putting myself in his spot in his place. Yeah, yeah. At the end, that now his space has been invaded, um, and he tears it up. I mean, like, dude, there's... it looks like a dilapidated house. Yeah, like, like his landlord is gonna lose their mind. Been sitting for like seventy years, completely unattended to, out in the middle of goodness knows where. That that's such a wild, like such a stark contrast, <laughs> you know, from his neat tidy perfect little apartment and then you can see like the floorboards and you can see like the boards and the mm-hmm. wall like it's just so wild yeah it really is it, it's uh you see the, this guy just broken down like everything and, he's been doing just gets to him yes and also like he seems so 
he seems like he's pretty good at keeping himself like reserved and calm most of the time, but we see him like lash out or like completely lose it a few times. Like, you know, even when he's like leaving that girl and it seems like it's forever. Cause she's like, I'm not waiting for you. He like still kind of keeps him, keeps his cool, but like his coworker, that um keeps asking him questions people just want to know him and want to know what's happening and what they're a part of and sometimes he just loses it with that and i guess this was like the big volcano yeah well it's it's you know maybe even uh like trying to live this like isolated life is in its own way like the penalty right because he has no one he can turn to no one he can really trust and it is either people's safety you know that they don't know things yeah like one of the questions is like what are they what is the why did they hire us like why are we tracking them and he's like i don't ask those things that's not my job is to do the thing that they hire me for and he doesn't articulate it all the way like he kind of gets frustrated trying to explain it maybe because he does feel guilty and he's already like struggling with that so he's like ah Look, I don't want to I don't want to think about it. Like this is what I'm good at. This is the only thing I can do. If I don't do things like this, and what is my job? What am I what am I doing? Although it could work for some pretty good bands, I would imagine with the way he's able to like mix stuff, but I feel like he could do a lot of I mean it might still be kind of the same but like the FBI or the CIA, I feel like, but I mean, it would be probably along the same lines, but yeah. Um, and oh yeah, cause he's independent, but he definitely could probably work for any of that stuff if he was inclined to, but Gene Hackman is like 92 years old and he's been retired now for a few years. Um, I think, unfortunately, if I'm not mistaken, his last movie was welcome to Mooseport with, uh, um, oop, oh. Ray Raymond. Everybody loves him. Ray Romano. There it is. Oh, um, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but yeah. I think that was his last one. Yeah, and I think there's like a Superman to the Richard Donner cut. Um, yeah, that looks like it was a reissue. Maybe. It, uh, yeah, the Richard Donner did not direct Superman two. Um, oh, and but he was supposed to. There's a whole thing. Uh, so they did like a Donner cut a few years back, but that's he had filmed that in the '80s, not recently. Um, yeah, Welcome to Mooseport is the last movie he's in that isn't like a documentary about something he did. Um. Yeah, in that movie, not not one Gene Hackman should have ended on because he is phenomenal in so many movies. I don't know. Um, I still need to watch the heist, or it's just heist. But um, I really, really loved. Uh, oh, I love him in the replacements. Um, that's one of my. I think an underrated football movie. I loved Keanu Reeves in that so much. Um, I need to watch Crimson Tide still. Yeah, I know. I was just looking through his. I was like, I feel like I haven't seen a lot of his movies. I've seen a few. Um, Quick and the Dead is my one of my favorite uh, westerns. In fact, I think oh. it's it's. I really like the the nature of it because it is like my favorite part of most westerns is the the shootout, right? So Sam Raimi directs the Quick and the Dead, and the the movie is basically like, what? hey, what if there is a shootout competition? So like everyone in there is like it's like a uh, NBA jam of like shootouts. So it's just a tournament. Everyone's there to have these quick draws. And so you get these awesome sequences. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is in it. Um, uh, Sharon Stone is the lead. Um, it's one of the earliest Russell Crowe American films. Like it's, I really, really like the movie. I don't, it's, it's, 
it's same Sam Raimi, so it's got some weird stuff going on in it. But I I enjoy that. Um, Unforgiven, he's also an incredibly great bad guy. Uh, yeah, he, he's good at being a bad guy. Um, we also watched uh, The French Connection, which is just a couple of years before this. Um, and I like that movie. I didn't love it, but I, we did like it, if I remember correctly. I think we both had positives. Yeah, I think so. Isn't the, forgive me, isn't the Unforgiven also a Western? Yes, it's a Clint Eastwood Western. Okay. It's more traditional Western. The Quick and the Dead has like a weird Sam Raimi humorish kind of thing going on. Um, so it's got, you know, it, it it won't work for everybody. I really like it, though. Um, so the conversation uh, of Ford Coppola's films that I've seen, which I've seen the big ones, like I've seen, uh, I didn't watch Godfather 3, but I've seen Godfather Part 1 and 2. I seen did. Apocalypse Now. Um, uh now I've seen the conversation, which was a big gap for me. I've seen Outsiders and Rumblefish, obviously. Um, I don't know what other big ones of Ford Coppola's I haven't seen. I've seen Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, which I don't love. Um, other people do. Corey being one of them. Um, it. It's one of the worst cast movies ever made. Uh, <laughs> I well, God, see, and then he does like some wild stuff after Bram Stoker's because he directs Jack. Which is the Robin oh, Williams movie, yeah. which I can't believe he's the director for that. Am I right? Yeah, he is. Oh my goodness, um, the Rainmaker, which I actually really like with Matt uh, Matt Damon. That was one of like the like earliest Matt Damon movies I remember seeing as a kid. Um, and then I haven't seen almost anything else. He directed the Captain EO Michael Jackson thing. That's wild. That was a MGM ride, if I like a 3D um, experience at MGM. Um, yeah, and he hasn't done anything recently. He's got a big project he's been working on. I forget what it is, but is it me- megalop, megalop, whatever that is. Megalop- I think so. Where, where are you seeing that? Is it on IMDb? Yeah. Ah. Yeah, that's the thing he's been trying to get made for a while. Um, will probably be his last thing. I tried to watch Twix from 2011, and I can't even remember if I made yeah, it through the whole Elf thing. Yeah. Wow, Val Kilmer too, huh? Yeah, that seems weird. Um Stern. Yeah, he's in a lot of stuff. It oof, that looks that looks rough. Uh does not have a good rating. Um I tried yeah, though, guys. I think I, I've seen all of his big movies. I think the, the last one I really need to see is Peggy Sue Got Married, which does not feel like a Francis Ford Coppola movie, but Oh, yeah, that's the last big one I need to watch. Um, so I I'm, I feel pretty content with his. I don't want to dive into his filmography the same way. I still plan on watching the, the three or four Spielberg films I haven't seen, um, even though they're like notoriously not his best, uh, always being one of them. Um, but I don't feel that way for four Coppola. De Palma, I'm also, I don't think I'm going to try to do all of his movies, but I do want to hit the other big ones, which, of course, that brings us to next week's episode. Uh, We are going back to De Palma to end our series. Uh, Corey selected Dress to Kill. Um, And I'm trying to pull up the deets on that one real fast, because I do, I think De Palma's a very interesting filmmaker. That's, I feel like Spielberg, is obviously the uh, most like 
crowd-pleasing filmmaker of this group. George Lucas would fall right underneath that, but Lucas is kind of more concerned with making what he likes, more so than he's worried about what everyone else likes. It just so happens that a lot of people like Star Wars. Um, Spielberg's making, like, accessible art house type big-budget blockbusters. Scorsese's making R-rated blockbusters. They're for a general populace, but for adults, right? Like, there are a lot of crime movies. Um, I love Scorsese. I love Spielberg. I love Scorsese. There's almost no movie in Scorsese's filmography that I don't find something to take away from. I don't love all of them, um, but I think all of them are like a master's hand is noted in every one of those films. Spielberg's mostly there's a few though that you can kind of see where it's just like, eh, you maybe didn't need to make this particular movie. Like I love Jurassic Park. He did make the sequel, which isn't great. There's a scene where she gymnastic kicks a raptor in the face, you know, they all make mistakes. That's what I would do. Um, I mean, if I could do it, uh, to be fair, it's an impressive ability, but, uh, De Palma, I've seen Scarface. I've seen Carrie. I've seen Mission Impossible. I really need to watch The Untouchables. I think that's one of the big ones that I haven't seen in Carlito's Way. Those are like the two big ones left on his filmography. Add those in somewhere. I, I don't I haven't disagree. Seen them Maybe I, I, we could always extend the series. You know, like we, we have no rhyme or reason. We're not we're not beholden to anybody but ourselves. Um, or we could make another series later. Who knows? But we're doing Dress to Kill. Now, this is uh, an, a later one, 1980. Uh, this is a year before Blowout, which was what we started the series with. Um, and Dress to Kill, 1980, we get uh, Nancy Allen back. Um, she's also in Blowout. Uh, Michael Caine is in this. Keith Gordon, Angie Dickinson, Dennis Franz. Uh, we'll stop there. Those other people don't seem like they're quite as known. Um, a mysterious, tall, blonde woman wearing sunglasses, murder, murders one of a psychiatrist's patients, and now she's after the prostitute who witnessed it. So I'm guessing uh, Nancy Allen is not the tall blonde woman. I'm guessing she's the prostitute who witnessed it. Um, because she's not tall, I don't feel. I could be wrong, but I feel like she's like average height. Um, I'm excited to watch this one. Uh, it is currently on HBO Max. Uh, so if you have a HBO Max description, you can watch Dress to Kill and be ready to listen to our episode next two weeks from now. Um, old habits. Uh, <laughs> so um, that's it for this episode. That's Rumblefish and The Conversation, both Francis Ford Coppola films. Uh, we are going to do at least one more of the movie Brats. Maybe we'll do more. We'll figure that out. Um, and it's going to be Dress to Kill for sure. Uh, come back in two weeks, listen to the episode. If you like what we're doing here at Burke Reviews Movie Club, I ask that you take just a minute, give us the five-star rating on whatever podcast catcher you utilize. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media. I'm at Burke Reviews and Corey. At Corey, our star, two R's on the end. And like we always say, keep watching movies. Hey, this is Matt from What I Watched Tonight. Come join me in the back row for movie discussion, retrospective episodes with guests, director-focused shows, end-of-year rankings, start-of-the-year predictions, and much, much more. There's more going on in the back row than you might think. This has been a Burke Reviews podcast. BurkeReviews.com. <laughs>